I'm Dave Whitaker, and this is Vinyl Snob. Many of those studios in those days had a disc cutting room. You'd go in there and you'd record, they'd mix, and then they'd send you an acetate. When I had the time, I'd go watch this guy cut records. In the morning, he'd do a rock record. In the afternoon, he'd do a jazz record. And the next day, he'd do a Hawaiian record. And I just, the whole process of putting music onto vinyl was very fascinating. That's Ron McMaster. He's been cutting vinyl at Capitol Records in Hollywood since the mid-80s. And he'll give us a look at the industry both before and after the introduction of the CD. We'll also chat a bit about the new generation of record buyers. They're mostly the young kids that we were speaking about earlier. Blows my mind seeing it full circle. That's all coming up on today's show. Okay, right off the bat, if you tuned into a program called Vinyl Snob, hoping to hear a good rant about the scourge of digital music and the MP3, uh, sorry. With digital downloads, thousands of songs at your fingertips, the distance digital music has come in a relatively short time is simply amazing. Digital makes it easy for people to access their music anywhere, myself included. I mean, have you ever tried to use a turntable on an airplane? Eh, Not so much. So what's it all about? Does vinyl really sound better than digital? Well, I think so, but I can't prove it. Sales, on the other hand, are a different story. Who's buying? A combination of vinyl collectors like myself and an unlikely group. The media has dubbed them the Millennials. People under the age of 25. And where are they buying these records? Increasingly at independent record stores. Yes, the old brick-and-mortar institutions once given up for dead now account for 45% of all records sold in the U.S. Amazingly, you'll also find vinyl now at stores like Target, Borders Books, Urban Outfitters, and Whole Foods. And on a recent trip to the electronics retailer Fry's, I came across racks full of new vinyl. Our first guest on the program is Ron McMaster. As a mastering engineer, Ron's been part of the music business going back to the early 80s. He remembers a time before digital music. I had a chance to speak with Ron from his mastering suite at Capitol Records in Hollywood, and we're going to share that conversation with you now. And yes, his last name really is McMaster. There's no way I could have a program titled Vinyl Snob without talking with an old friend. Ron McMaster is a master and engineer at Capitol Records in Hollywood. Welcome to the show, Ron. It's great to be here with you, David. Thank you. You work at the Capitol Tower in Hollywood, Hollywood and Vine, and probably one of the most recognizable buildings if you want a shot of L.A. In fact, I was watching a show just the other night, and boom, there it is. The building went up in 1956 and recently got landmark status. Is that correct? Yes, we got landmark status on the first and second floor because we occupy those as studios. Studios are on the first floor and the second floor we have what they call writer rooms and some production rooms. And so those also got categorized for landmark status. So so they can't touch the first and second floor from then on up if someone wants to move in and just change it to condos or whatever you want to call it. Uh, That could all change, but they couldn't touch the exterior or the first or second floor. When you think about the artists that have come through that building when it opened, uh, I believe, in 1956 or 1957, it must be amazing to show up there for work every day. Oh, yeah. It's it's a real thrill to work here. Uh, 
this building brings many surprises uh, as an employee, especially in the recording and, and the mastering department, because at, at any given time, you could be surprised by somebody either A, walking in your room or you being called upon if you're not doing anything. Hey, can you do some edits for Phil Ramone or this or that? Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. And uh, I, I really never get tired of it because I, I'm constantly surprised by the people I'll see in the hall or people who will maybe want to come by and see uh, see a lathe in operation and see their record being cut. It's constantly entertaining and challenging and always very fulfilling. And I understand a, a few months back you actually had a Beatles sighting. Uh, yes, I did. Ringo had his birthday celebration here, and so he had a little get-together out in the front of the building, and then he came back down to Studio A and had a bunch of guests and celebrated his birthday right quick, and he shot me the peace sign, and uh, I got to wish him a happy birthday. And I've also been able to run into McCartney because he he now works here quite often when he comes to town. So yeah, it's 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 a big thrill to be able to see those guys, you know, just right there next to you when you're walking down the hall or you get in the elevator to go upstairs and there they are, you know. Is it difficult at times to keep your ego in check? (laughs) Yes, you can get a little bit jaded uh, because you see so many people all the time. But when you see a Beatle or anybody like in that status, Eric Clapton, you know, tapped me on the shoulder once because then I was writing on a chalkboard and he wanted to know where to get something. And I turned around and it was him. And I'm like thinking to myself, do you know who you are? Of course he did. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, or the other day uh, I had finished a session and I had my door open and I was completing a project and uh, I heard somebody in my room. So I looked up and it was Rod Stewart. I knew he was in the building doing vocals, but uh, at the same time, he wasn't in here for mastering. So I said, well, hey, Rod, what can I do for you? And he goes, how do I get out of here? <laughs> so he was lost. <laughs> So it was kind of fun, and I said, well, listen, I'm a big fan. Let me show you how to get to the exit. <laughs> so those are the kind of things that make your make your day kind of like, you know, I'm really here to work. They're really paying me for this, so, you know, i got to continue to do a good job, and so they do, you know. Uh, you started out not uh, planning to be a mastering engineer. You were in a band in Sacramento, if I remember right, mm-hmm. and uh, you were the drummer. Yes. And you guys went to L.A. to record, and how did you go from sitting on the uh, the drums out in the studio to sitting behind the mastering console. Many of those studios in those days had a disc cutting room. You'd go in there and you'd record, they'd mix, and then they'd send you an acetate. When I'd have breaks and so forth, the studio that I was working at here at Sound Recorders, where we were doing our record, they had the same facility. So when I had the time, I'd go watch this guy cut records, and I just kind of thought it was very fascinating. You know, it... In the morning, he'd do a rock record. In the afternoon, he'd do a jazz record. And the next day, he'd do a Hawaiian record. And I just, the whole process of putting music onto vinyl uh, was very fascinating. And I also, you know, liked the fact that he had a regular job and he wasn't bringing these drums all over the country. So uh, that made it kind of appealing. And so I, uh, I met a few other people that did the same thing that happened to work nights. And so I'd have a regular job during the day. And at night, if they didn't have a session, they'd let me come in and hang out and just learn the process. So I did that for about a year and a half before I uh, interviewed and got a job as an apprentice for United Artists. And the United Artists studio, that was down the street from the Capitol Tower? Yes, that was down the street from the Capitol Tower, a few miles away from here at uh, Orange in Santa Monica. What was the uh, What was the industry like 
it was it was strictly an analog world and then we had eight tracks and when i started i was apprenticing vinyl mastering but it was also part of my job to do production and tape copies and uh, make eight track masters and that type of thing now people that have grown up all they know is digital so the old world of tape and cutting tape with a razor blade and that type of thing uh, fascinates them. Yes, it does. Stone knives and bear skins, it seems like it sometimes. <laughs> What's really fascinating is the guys before me that were working here in the building, uh, before they had editing blocks, they would do their edits with scissors. And I'd see these old pictures of these uh, engineers at Capitol, and they all had their slacks on and their shirts and ties, and in everybody's back pocket they had a pair of scissors, and that's how they would cut and edit tape. Uh, I heard some stories about how they would do some long crossfades like that in the classical world, where they would cut a real long 45-degree one way and one the other way by hand and then put them together and make a crossfade you know, in a classical piece. We, we think about that now. We talk and we kind of laugh and like, oh my God, how could you do that? But at the time, that was the state of the art, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah, they didn't even have editing blocks invented yet. So now when I tell, you know, I tell the kids that story, uh, you know, they're used to non-destructive editing. So, uh, of course, you're in Pro Tools and you can do an edit and you don't like, or do a fade and you don't like it, you can go right back and change it. and do. But back then, you know, you... Uh, you mess it up and you do it over. <laughs> and sometimes you can't do it over because that's the only take you've got. So you got to be pretty careful and pretty good. So, uh, so yeah, it's a different world with today and computers and files uh, compared to what we used to have to uh, uh, work with on a daily basis. So when did you first start seeing uh, digital come into the, the picture? My, my vague memory would be mid-80s when uh, I was at a radio station and the, the program director came in and said, we're going to have a demonstration of the new, it's called a compact disc. <laughs> These little silver discs. <laughs> when did you first start seeing those uh, show up in the industry and what was the industry's first reaction? Well, you're right. Those started showing up in the mid 80s. I'm kind of thinking 85, something like that. And it was new to all of us. I mean, at one point they had these classes over here at the one of the hotels uh, with, that had a big room and they'd have the, all the people from Sony there and they had all, all the engineers in town were there taking notes and learning how to operate a 1610 or a 1630 Sony PMZ because that's what they were going to be transferring all their new material to or, or not new material but the let's say material in the archives or they were going to recording new albums to that and so everybody had to learn at the same time we were all like in school at the same time because it was new to everyone by this time emi had purchased united artists so now i was in the emi family the label wanted all of the product out on digital as fast as they could because that was the new thing and people were buying it up like crazy and they say look we want to get all the blue note catalog out there or we want to get all this catalog out there this and that and all the beach boys this and that so people could have this new format that was coming up the pike you know when did you first start seeing or getting a feeling that uh, the writing was on the wall and uh, you would be doing digital and uh, vinyl was gonna probably fall by the wayside I would probably say in the 
mid to early 90s, you started to see everything fade off. Digital improved. We went from the 1610 to the 1630s, and then they just kept upgrading, and that was the way it was going to be going. And so people wanted to keep making those improvements. There was no ticks. There was no pops. You could put a lot more music on a disc, up to uh, 78 minutes, and people were just overjoyed with that. And then people started recording their own albums on CD, and vinyl just kind of started drifting down, 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 down. It started going away, and uh, people started, you know, not wanting that format anymore. They went strictly to digital, and that was the way it was going to be, and then that was the new format. And then at some point um, in the early 90s, you left Capitol Records and you came up to Sacramento, which is where you and I met. Right. What was what was the, the move about? Well, the move for me was, you know, I had just always had an urge and a, and a longing to uh, kind of have my own business. I started in 1980 with the company, and this was 1993. And since Sacramento was my hometown, I, I found that there was a need for a good quality audio and video duplication center. And so that's why I went up there to start that, to work with the band up there and I never burned any bridges here in fact I would uh, always come back to LA to visit friends and I'd always make a stop here at Capitol time passed you were up here in Sacramento and I remember running into you at one of the Friday afternoon concerts in the park oh yes and this would have been 95 96 you said that uh, mm-hmm. you were going back to LA couple of weekends a month to cut vinyl and I remember we looked at each other and went who wants vinyl these days <laughs> how did that come about? Uh, well, one of the longtime engineers here, Wally Trogat, he's a very famous uh, mastering engineer, uh, he was getting ready to retire. And that's how I came into the picture because they needed somebody because no one else knew how to cut vinyl. My boss, the same man, was in charge and uh, he knew what was going on. And uh, he said, Look, we still haven't filled your position yet. Vinyl is still popular. Uh, would you consider coming back? We, we, need, we need your uh, expertise on this. And so. I said, sure. Uh, I was kind of running out of money and things weren't working out uh, as well as I had planned in Sacramento. And, uh, of course, with all the insurance benefits and all the other things that a larger company offers, I had to grab it. So uh, that's that was my reasoning behind it. And, and I still had a lot of friends here, so it was just like coming home. I just uh, I gave it a shot, and uh, it didn't work out properly for me, but it was a great experience. And uh, actually, it's really benefited me. Uh, throughout the years, it, it gave me some very good insight to the outside world. You know, when you're in a room all the time and people are coming to you, it's a little different experience than when you're on the outside and you see how rough it is and how hard it is and the cost factors of just getting a record out or going to a recording studio. Uh, you just gain a much bigger appreciation for the f- what the client is going through. Uh, you understand their issues and their problems a little better, I think. At this time, at the time when you went back in the 90s, um, digital had been a sort of reigning king for almost a decade. Um, were there still a lot of mastering houses in L.A.? Did studios still have cutting rooms uh, and people who knew how to operate them, or had that kind of started to become a lost art? That became uh, started becoming a lost art and started to disappear within the, the fragments because the Pro Tools became stronger and stronger people building their own studios became stronger and stronger Uh, we found that the mastering part of this stayed pretty strong Uh, we were still cutting vinyl it hadn't faded out 
a lot of dance records at the time, a lot of scratch records. They hadn't converted over to the digital format yet. There was a lot of that, but it wasn't crazy like it is today. I mean, um, I pretty much cut vinyl today about four days out of the five, one to two albums a day. When did you start seeing the demand for vinyl? When did it start seeming like, wow, vinyl is making a comeback, people wanting it more and more? I'm going to have to say four years ago, uh, five years ago, that's when I started getting bombarded with everybody, oh, can we need this on vinyl, we need this on vinyl, and and it would just come in in droves. And then, of course, the label, our label, and other labels wanted it. There's very few of these uh, lays in town and disc cutting rooms, so... Um, you not only get work from the label that you work for, but you get work for, from Sony and Warner Brothers and all the other labels that are around that want their product out. I know you're uh, you're just a few blocks away from uh, what I call probably the, the, the mothership of record stores. Amoeba Records in Hollywood is huge. It's, it's a city block long and, and four stories, or three stories plus a basement. I, you must get a nice feeling when you walk in there. I mean, do you go through the bins and go, oh, I did that. I did that. <laughs> Funny enough, I did. I do do that. It, it's kind of a kick for me because I'll see records I've cut back in the late 80s or the early 90s, especially the Blue Note, the jazz stuff. It's still it's there, and it's it's got my name on it. I know I've cut it, and uh, it's just kind of a kick to see it still in the bin, and people are buying them. People are buying them up, so yeah, their inventory there is crazy. Uh, I love that place. It's just fun to see all the variety that they have, and of course now they're selling turntables as well, so um, you know, you can get the whole package down there. <laughs> Do you ever talk to uh, any any of the folks in line with uh, you know a stack of records in their arms and go, excuse me, what, what, what do you see in vinyl? Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's one of the fun things I'd like to do because they're mostly the young kids that we were speaking about earlier, and uh, and I asked them. I said, "So, what's your favorite? And what you know, what do you like about this?" And and those kind of questions. I like to just pick their brains and see uh, see what kind of fans they are and uh, and what they've got in their arms and what they're buying and uh, uh, those kind of questions. And and it's just it's a lot of fun to hear their responses. They're all very enthusiastic. They're happy. They're they they really dig it and. Uh, and 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 they're paying an extreme amount of money for the same thing that you and I bought back in the old days at Tower for probably three to four dollars. You know they're paying twenty five and thirty dollars for it. So uh, and happily, yeah, yeah, it's no questions asked. It's just kind of the way it is. So um, it it can, you know it blows like I said earlier. It blows my mind seeing it full circle and you know starting out that way and now seeing everybody generating it that way and. Uh, uh, it's just, it's a lot of fun. And, and uh, yes, I do ask him. I can't, I can't help myself. <laughs> That's Ron McMaster, mastering engineer at Capitol Records. He joined us from the Capitol Tower in Hollywood. And that's our program. Vinyl Snob is produced at the studios of Post Audio in Sacramento, California. Our theme music was composed by Cameron Robbins. Dana Barry is executive producer. I'm Dave Whitaker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>